0: We've been talking this whole month about thin places. A thin place is where the distance between us and God becomes real near and real close. And one of those places that becomes very thin is a, is a moment of brokenness. When we find ourselves so overwhelmed by life and its circumstances, and we reach the very end of ourselves... You know what I mean by the end of ourselves? When you are at the end of yourself and you have nothing left to give, nothing left to offer, you don't know what to do, and you want this thing to go away from you. But you don't know what to do. You have to walk through it. And sometimes those moments in life, those those thin, very thin places, feel like places for us of the absence of God. But the reality is what we learn from Uh, Our stories, the scripture stories, from life itself, at those places that we feel like God is absent, most absent, oftentimes are the most powerful places when God becomes real to us. Because when we get to the end of ourselves, what happens? Everything is stripped away. The things that we thought were important are not so important. Because when you get the end of me, what do you find? You find the real me, the real self, the the self that's not pretending. And it's in that thin place, that thin place, when we're separated from all that other stuff, that place of brokenness, that God is really sometimes able to do some amazing things with us and and with our lives. So I'm going to open up and I'm going to read the scripture, and we're going to be looking at one of those moments. And it is Matthew chapter 26. So Matthew 26, verse 36 through 46, let's hear the word of God. Uh, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. I want you to he, he fell to the ground and prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you today for your gracious love. How great is your love for us. It's really hard for us to even comprehend and begin to understand the depth in your love for us. And today as I talk about your son Jesus and a deeply troubled moment for him, I pray that we will see in his moment of brokenness, his beauty, his grace, his love, Who he was for us, who he is for our world, the hope for all people. And I pray that today in our church that you would stir our hearts with affection for him. That we would fall in love with him and who he is and what he wants for us. And I so desperately today, Lord, need you to bring my very best for you in this moment. Not for me, not for us, but for you. To shine a light upon your glorious and beautiful Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, t- in the prayer, you heard me say that um, when I read this story of the Garden of Gethsemane, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about this story. I've been reading and preaching on this story for a long, long time. And Usually when I read this story, I automatically think of my own self and who am I in the story and about my own moments in life of difficulty and hardship. But as I read the story this week, I began to think about who Jesus was and and what he was going through. And it just literally really did bring me to my knees just feeling what he was feeling and thinking about what he was thinking and realizing what a troubling and distressing moment that was for him. You know, sometimes what we do is we we lift him so high as a divine son of God that we forget he was also a human being. He was a human being. and In that moment in the garden, he wasn't pretending to be a human being. No, he was a human being. And literally in that moment, he has fallen to the ground and he is deeply distressed. Uh, Mark says he was deeply distressed and troubled. Matthew said he was overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. Overwhelmed in his soul by sorrow to the point that he felt like he was going to die. And in Luke's gospel, it says that his prayer was so desperate that he fell to the ground in that moment, in that very moment. And he prayed so desperately that he began to sweat tears of blood and in that moment you you see Jesus at his most human and his most raw before God and you realize and understand he didn't want to die. He didn't want to be humiliated. He didn't want to be broken. He didn't want to be forsaken. But have you ever just taken a moment and and looked at the story and thought about in that moment just how desperately lonely he was in that moment. He was facing something he was going to have to face alone. He was going to, have to endure something all alone. And the people who claimed love and loyalty for him were soon going to abandon him. And as he was sharing his last meal with his disciples, one of his own disciples had already made plans to betray him and to give him over for silver. And soon he knew that his life was going to end. And in that moment, just like any one of us, when we are facing something that we can't overcome, when we get to the end of ourselves, he is desperate, he is broken, he is hurting, he is wounded. Can we feel that? Like I said, sometimes we lift him up so high, we don't see that part of himself. I read somewhere this last week, there was a biblical commentator who said, he said that Christianity's early critics use this story in order to prove that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Because in that culture it was inconceivable for them to think that a Son of God could have human emotions and feelings because he wasn't like other noble people who suffered. When other people who were heroes in that culture suffered, they suffered nobly, without pain, without complaining, without anguish. But here in the Bible, we see the story of Jesus in pain. So obviously, he was not the Son of God. The commentator went on to say later that this story, because it was potentially embarrassing to Jesus as the Son of God, has to be historically true, because otherwise the gospel writers would not have included it in the account. Why would they have included an account of the gospel, a story that diminished the image of Jesus, unless it were true and was saying something about God and who God was, And who God is that was so different from anything around us. That's what I love about Jesus. He just breaks all the categories. Because we see Jesus here in Gethsemane as a real live human being who understood what it's like to be broken. Who understood what it's like to be caught in the crucible of pain and suffering a human being who shared what we share in every single moment in life. And friends, I may not say anything else this morning. I can say this right now to you and you can go on and start looking at your NCAA bracket right now whether you're winning or losing and just check out. But hear me now, I want to say to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning is that we have a God who became truly, truly one of us, not pretending to be one of us but who shared this experience with one of us, every single one of us. That's the gospel. Who came for the poor in spirit, who came for the meek, who came for those who mourn. He came with mercy. He is all those Beatitudes that we spoke about last week. Gethsemane now was a garden. It was at the base of the foot of the Mount of Olives. It was directly across the Kidron Valley in a mountain where Jesus was spending his time while he was staying in Jerusalem. They would spend the day in the temple teaching. They would retreat to the Mount of Olives where he would spend time teaching his disciples and resting. According to the story what happened, Jesus had just spent the night with his disciples sharing a meal and having a very tender moment with him and he had been crossed the Kidron Valley and gone to the Garden of Gethsemane and took Peter, James and John with him because he wanted to spend some night, knowing what he was facing he had to pray. Now Gethsemane is a a word that means oil press. It was a place where There were olive trees, and they would make olive oil, and they would press the olives. And it's literally meant to be a moment. The reason it's significant, Gethsemane means refers to symbolically a moment when we are pressed by life's circumstances. And it was in that moment when we see Jesus on his knees having his Gethsemane moment when he is being pressed by what is ahead of him. Now now let me ask you then, let's talk about ourselves for a minute. Have you ever had one of those moments? Have you been to your own Gethsemane? You know, you know where Gethsemane is for me? Beer Nose Pizza on Taylorsville Road. <laughs> Not because I just like pizza, because soon as after I've been diagnosed with lymphoma, my family, I was trying to pretend like everything was okay. You know, when you, when you, when you have cancer and you're with your children, You want your children to know that dad's going to be okay. You imagine to tell your children you have cancer. I just told them and we'd gone there to eat dinner and I became so overwhelmed while we were eating I couldn't eat. And I couldn't hold it in anymore and so I had to run outside the restaurant on Taylor's Road and I remember standing underneath the no side in the dark saying I don't want to die. Couldn't hold it. I don't want to leave my family. And I will tell you, I'm a person of faith, but I was so incredibly frightened and scared for myself, for our church. How do I tell you? And every time I drive by that Beer Nose Pizza, every time I run by Beer Pizza, I remember that moment of darkness. It was my Gethsemane moment. It makes me think of Sheryl Sandberg. You know who Sheryl Sandberg is? Sheryl Sandberg is uh, one of the founders of Facebook. Uh, she's been with Mark Zuckerberg for a long time. She's the chief operating officer. And uh, in her early, th- late 30s, she was on top of the world. She was in love with a man by the name of David Goldberg. And they were having a wonderful life. She wrote a great book that uh, about being a woman in the business place. Very, very popular book. Well-loved and she was very successful, top of the world. They went away, just her and her husband with a bunch of friends, he's on the treadmill and she leaves for a minute and comes back and finds him unconscious on the floor and later he died from a major cardiac arrest. Her world in that moment became a moment where she was literally pressed by the Gethsemane moment. She didn't call it that, but it's the same thing essentially. It's a moment we find ourselves in life when we literally get to the end of ourselves. And we have nothing we can give or or offer, and we don't don't know what to turn. We don't want to go through it. Let this cup pass from me moment. Later on, she went on to write a book about it called Option B. And if you're in a Gethsemane moment, I highly recommend it. It's about how to find resilience in the midst of life's adversity. But in it, I want to read to you something that she wrote. She said, in that moment, in that moment, so began the rest of my life. It was and still is a life I would have never chosen, a life I was completely unprepared for. It was the unimaginable. I was in the void, a vast emptiness that fills your heart and lungs and restricts your ability to think or even breathe. You ever been in a moment like that when you don't think you can even breathe? She said, grief is a demanding companion. In those early days and weeks and months, it was always there, not just below the surface, but on the surface, simmering, lingering, festering. Then like a wave, it would rise up and pulse through me as if it were going to tear my heart right out of my body. In those moments, I felt like I couldn't bear the pain for one more minute, much more less one more hour. That's a Gethsemane moment. You know, and sometimes it's not just a a, a loss or, uh, sometimes it's just you find yourself in a situation where you have to make a courageous choice. Have you ever had to make a decision that you knew was going to be unpopular and that you were going to be the only person doing what you were going to do? You were going to be the only one stepping out of the boat into the rough water and nobody was going to go with you and it required courage and that you knew you would suffer for it. You're going to struggle for it. Let me tell you, if you want to be a force for love in this world, in a world filled with hate, 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 and animosity, and you choose to be a person of love, you're going to find yourself in a place where you're going to be in a Gethsemane moment. So in that moment then we see Jesus, Jesus, his end of me moment. And I wonder if the disciples were wondering what's going on because Peter, James, and John had just been up on the mountain with him his Mount of Transfiguration. You remember what happened there? They see him there transfigured. Uh, He's white. he's He's shining like the sun. He's on top of the mountain. He's on top of the world. They're there with him. They're excited. Moses and Elijah show up to teach him and speak with him. And then they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. And surely they thought at that moment, holy cow, maybe not, but holy cow. This is, this is the Son of God. He is. We made a good choice. Now they're here in the garden and they see the Son of God on his knees. Praying, drops of blood, begging for his life. And they're probably wondering, I don't understand. But you see, the gospel is that he was both of these things. He was both the Son of God and he was also The son of man, fully God, and fully man. My point for pointing it out to you is that that sometimes we have trouble connecting with him and the reason that we don't share our honest raw feelings about things is because we only see him as son of God we don't see him as one of us and so as a result we hold back my point this morning is to you is that when you reach the end of me when you get to the end of me it's okay to share what's really in you and to be real and honest because he did because when you get to the end of me You need to know you've you've met someone who has already been there before you who was honest and real and didn't hide and didn't pretend, who shared this experience in the same way that we all share it. And what we learn from Jesus is that when you get to the play that place in life, what we learn from one, it was fully God and fully human. We have someone that connects with our experience. And in that moment, you can be yourself. You can be afraid. You can be scared. You don't have to be brave. You don't have to keep a stiff upper lip. And you can tell God what's on your heart. You could be angry. You could be mad. You can say, why me? All those things, because when you reach the end of me, that's the moment God can become most real to me because everything is stripped away. All the things that you are holding on to, your pride, your attachments, everything is gone. I'm not saying I want to go there. I don't want to have another beer-nosed moment. I don't want another. But I can tell you this, at that moment, at the end of me, I met the God who is bigger than me. And let me tell you something else. I'm going to start preaching now, George, because when you get to the end of me, you know what you do? You're going to find a love that's bigger than me. A love that's greater than me. A love that's more beautiful than me. You see, you look at that story and you realize how great the love of Jesus is. That even though he knew this world would betray him. Even though he saw his disciples sleeping there on the ground. Even though he knew that everyone would turn against him. Even though he knew that everyone in that crowd that was cheering for him on Palm Sunday were going to be crying. For his death on Friday, he still chose to love them. He didn't reject them. And then you know what happens? After he is raised from the dead, he doesn't go look for new disciples. He goes back to the same broken ones and chooses them again and pours his love into them, forgives them, renews them, replenishes them. And I gotta tell you something if Judas hadn't ended his life, he'd have brought Judas right back in too. He would have brought him right back. Come home home, Judas. All is forgiven. We can do it again because at the end of me, we find a love that is greater than me. And I tell you what we find at the end of me, we also find the love that takes the long view of me. You know what I mean by that? I mean, take my worst moment. And there have been many. And you can define my life by that worst moment. We look at people and we see their worst moment and we define them as that person forever. Isn't it funny how you change and grow, but that jerk you knew in high school, you think they're still the same as they were in high school? You can change, but they can't change, right? I'm growing, but they're not growing and they're still that idiot that picked on you, that bully when you in, you know? Everybody, you see, God doesn't define us by our worst moment. He's got the long view of who we are. And so he didn't define Peter, James, and John by that moment when they failed him there in the garden. But instead, what did he do? He saw their life over the long haul. And then at some point in their own life, what happens? They then find themselves in their own Gethsemane moments when they're facing their own death and loss for the sake of the gospel. You see, we find at the end of me, we find a love greater than me. At the end of me, we find a love that takes the high view. At the end of me, you know what we also find? We find that there's still more left of me because God is in me. His courage is in me. His strength is in me. And that's the promise that Jesus made. He said to his disciples, let me breathe on you my presence and my spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And the promise that Jesus made to us when he, before he died and after he died was that when we welcome him into his, our lives, he enters us through the broken places. He enters into our lives and he gives us his power and his strength to live in us. To take our Gethsemane moments, to take our broken places to be made beautiful. To use our shattered places, I think the song says, to be made into diamonds. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? I mean, how can you resist that love? You know, I look at the world, and I see the suffering, I see the pain in the world, and I think, what's the answer? The answer is the love of Jesus, not the love of Jesus that wants to conquer the world. But the love of Jesus that wants to overcome the world with his love, sacrificial love. Love wins in the end, forgiveness wins in the end, not the hate, not conquering our enemies, but loving our enemies. Turning the other cheek, doing the things that. And I want to tell you something. When you reach the end of me, you got an opportunity to take on a purpose that's bigger than me and bigger than you. The problem is that we have, and I'm gonna pick on us a little bit this morning, is we want just enough of God to get into heaven, but not, not enough of God to alter me. And I don't want to be altered. I want to be like Him. So let me just say this. I'm going a, I'm, to I'm a stop because I'd rather hear the band. And I know you would too. How great is His love! Can you not just love him? I mean, how can this not be true? It's so different, so strange. How can we not believe it? Because it's so different from anything else in the world to believe that God would become a human being and willingly make the choice to be taken from Gethsemane to the house of Caiaphas to Fort Antonio where he'd be condemned into a garbage dump where he would die.